What do the Beatles, Black Friday shopping at Walmart, foodies, and methamphetamine have in common? Well, you're about ready to find out. Here we go. Many of you were alive in 1968 when the Beatles uh, first appeared on the Ed Sullivan Show. And maybe you saw that, that show. It aired in front of an estimated 73 million people in America. Not bad for 1964. Uh, when the Beatles played I Want to Hold Your Hand, the audience went wild, out of control. And the hysteria surrounding the Beatles was eventually termed Beatlemania. Maybe you've heard that term, Beatlemania, and it was indeed mania. I read that Beatles fans would get so excited and determined to see the band that police sometimes resorted to using fire hoses to keep them back uh, crazy. And that reminds me of the, the time when I met John Piper at a conference, and conference security had to take me away. I'm just kidding. It, that, that didn't matter. <laughs> but you could envision it. That's hilarious. All right. Well, 12,000 12, people flocked to the London airport to welcome the Beatles back home after their first U.S. tour. And some actually slept at the airport just to watch them touched down, women fainted at the sight of the Beatles. And if you look at pictures, this is very interesting, of Beatles crowds, uh, some of the fans look joyful, others look high on drugs, and then some, they look terrified, like they're looking at a big monster coming into the city. Very interesting. Why all the mania surrounding the Beatles? Because people believed there was something great about the Beatles. Now Black Friday at Walmart. Let me read uh, you something from the New York Daily News. Black Friday took an ugly turn again when one mad bargain hunter took desperate measures at a Los Angeles Walmart, police said in 2011. A 32-year-old Southern California woman was accused of dousing a waiting crowd with pepper spray while she took off with a discounted Xbox. About 20 shoppers suffered minor injuries from the irritant. Come on. The woman actually claimed that it was self-defense because people were attacking her children to get their Xbox. All right? This is mild compared to some of the other stories. Why does this stuff happen? Because people believe there is something great about low-priced electronics. On In a Huffington Post blog article titled Worshipping Food, writer, comedian, and animal activist Elaine Boozler confessed, quote, I've worshipped food my whole life. And I skimmed most of her article, but the last paragraph is particularly enlightening. Here it is. So many people have turned away from God, but America is a big, fat nation already worshipping food. Churches wish they could open at the rate of new restaurants. We have restaurant reviewers, millions of cookbooks sold, the Zagat Guide where the people themselves can alert other people to food, food sections in the newspapers, food magazines, food vacations, food fairs, specialty supermarkets, and a whole 24-hour TV food channel. People actually call themselves foodies. When was the last time religion had that kind of a run? Don't let this opportunity get away. Take the food, worship, and jump on. And if there's any way to let the congregation vote on the choir, you've got them for life. People call themselves foodies because they believe there is something great 
about food. Last thing, methamphetamine. It's a highly addictive drug. Uh, They say that meth can make you feel happy and confident about yourself. It can give you a a deep sense of accomplishment and satisfaction. It can make you outgoing and assertive. Meth gives intense pleasure. It can suppress the appetite. It can help people lose weight. It can even make people feel uh, more confident about their physical appearance. But there's a big sacrifice for meth users. Beyond the money, you give up mental and physical health. Side effects include paranoia, hallucinations, anxiety, insomnia, loss of brain and motor functions, mood swings, aggressive behavior, increased heart rate and blood pressure, kidney and lung damage. Meth addicts look like zombies with bad teeth, if you've seen them. It's quite sad. It just kills them. And almost 11 million Americans have used meth. Why would anyone use meth? Come on. If the pain of life gets bad enough and the pleasure of meth appears good enough and their curiosity uh, overpowers and overruns their inhibitions, people try meth. People go for it when they see a certain greatness in meth. What do the Beatles, Black Friday at Walmart, foodies, and methamphetamine have in common? They're all illustrations of worship. Worship. Now, meth aside, meth aside, if you enjoy music or shopping or food, it doesn't automatically mean that you're worshiping those things. But you might be. And true worship of God doesn't look exactly like the things that I've mentioned. So don't think that if you're worshiping God truly, you're going crazy in mania like Beatles fans. But don't miss the point that I'm trying to make. The English word worship comes from an old English word that means worth-ship, which meant to give or attribute worth to something. You worship and serve what you find most valuable or worthy of your affection and worthy of your time. People worship what they think is great. People become fixated on something, so in love with that something that their life begins to revolve around that something. It consumes their thoughts. They think about it. They dream about it. They find it hard to focus on anything else. It consumes their emotions. They love it. They cherish it. They enjoy it, and they they feel ecstatic about it. It consumes their behaviors. They talk about it. They sing about it. They rearrange their schedule uh, to accommodate it. They spend money on it. They sacrifice to have it. This is worship. This is service. And what makes all the difference is this right here. What is the object of your worship? What is the object of your worship? Everyone directs their worship to something. Everyone directs their worship to something. It could be a person, it could be a place, it could be an experience, it could be really anything. People worship all kinds of things. Whatever people find the most beautiful or the most desirable or the most enjoyable or the most praiseworthy or the most compelling, that is the object of their worship. They live for that object, that thing, that experience, that place. That's the object of the worship. The hysteria surrounding the Beatles was worship. People's hearts were overwhelmed by the perceived greatness of the Beatles. Many a teenage girl had a hard time thinking of anything at that time other than the Beatles. 
People planned, sacrificed, spent money, screamed, reached for, even fainted. All because of the perceived greatness of the Beatles. The chaos surrounding Black Friday at Walmart is worship. People want low-price electronics so badly, they're willing to trample other people in order to get it. Because they perceive greatness in electronics. And they run the aisles, and they fight for position, and they yell, and they grab like they're beasts. I saw a YouTube video where a woman grabbed a box out of a kid's hands, and then they tussled with the mom. What in the world? I think we should really enjoy food. Please don't get me wrong on this point. I don't want you misreading what I'm saying. We should, and I think we can eat to the glory of God. But eating food can be worship. We turn to food to comfort us, to be a safe place for us, a retreat for us, to give us satisfaction in life. And if we're not careful, food masters us. The obesity epidemic in America alone shows many people worship food. And it's because they perceive some greatness in it. Meth addiction. It's worship. It's worship. People become enslaved to meth. They actually serve meth. Meth tells them what to do. And they orient their life around it. Now, why would they do that? Because they believe meth is great. And it can save them in some way from maybe pain or maybe boredom or maybe real life. Worship is not simply for Christians. And God is not the only object of people's worship. Everyone worships. Everyone that has ever lived worships something, even atheists and agnostics, and they worship and serve whatever they see worth and greatness in, even if it's themselves. Now, there are some questions that help us determine our object of worship. What do you think about all the time? What do you really, really get excited about? What do you love to talk about? What will you rearrange your schedule for? What do you sacrifice most to have or do or be? What is the common thread that runs through everything in your life? What influences you to do what you do? Those are the types of questions that will help you arrive at your object of worship. It'll help you identify, but be careful. God wants us to enjoy his gifts. I don't want to be misunderstood here. He gives us great things that he wants us to enjoy. 1 Corinthians 10.31 says, So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. He just wants your enjoyment to be God-directed. So that's not like lay off all earthly pleasures because you might be worshiping. No, he wants him to be worshiped in the enjoyment of those things. You can eat food and enjoy it to the glory of God. It's not necessarily worship. But be very careful, my friends, because it is a fine line. Very quickly can our enjoyment slip into worship. And that's idolatry. That's when we elevate something above God. And God knows, and we know what's most important to us, what we enjoy the most. God is the only acceptable object of worship. God 
is the only acceptable object of worship. What did Jesus say to Satan in the wilderness? Be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Him only. The object of our worship matters. And why it is the object of our worship matters. Why? This is such an honest question that I'd really appreciate if you'd answer in your heart. Okay? Why should we worship God and not music? Or fashion? Or popularity? Or sex? Or accomplishment? Or money? We need a good reason if God, you know, why God over all these things that give people so much pleasure? And here's why. It's very simple. God is greater than everything else. That's it. God is greater than everything else. God is the supreme good. God is most beautiful. God is most desirable. God is most enjoyable. God is most praiseworthy. God is most compelling. God calls you to worship Him alone because you were made to worship Him alone. And everything else makes a lousy God. You need to hear it right now because it it makes a difference in your now, in your 10 days from now, and in your future. What to do at the end of life to realize you've been worshiping the wrong thing for all those years and you're still not happy. As good as earthly pleasures can be, and they can be good, that God wants us to enjoy. Worshiping and serving them instead of God means we settle for something infinitely less valuable. than God, we don't have to settle, my friends. We can have the best. Don't you want the best? I just want the best, and we can have the best. Namely, a supremely great God. Don't settle for a piece of coal when you can have the unlimited treasure vaults of Erebor for all of you Tolkien fans. That just went over all... That's okay. It's okay. Just watch the decimation, desolation of Smaug. All right. Here's the point of the series. One simple point. Um, and I've labeled this series uh, the heart of worship. And so here's the, the simple point of where we're going throughout this series. God is the heartbeat of true worship and our hearts must beat for him alone. God is the heartbeat of true worship and our hearts must beat for him alone. You're not going to be satisfied, I promise you, in this life or in the next unless God is the heartbeat of your worship and your heart beats for him alone. The Holy Spirit's got to open your eyes here. The eyes of your heart to see the greatness of God in creation and in the gospel for your heart to truly beat for him. Otherwise, you'll just live to destroy your life by worshiping lesser things. A myriad of lesser things. Who is God and why is he so great? Who is God and why is he so great? Creation tells of the glory of God. You can see it every day. But you need to look deeply into the Bible to know what God is really like. You must read the Bible, and here's a little strategy for you to use, expecting, trusting that God will meet you and reveal himself to you. And so, that's what we're going to try to do this morning. God delivered Israel from slavery in Egypt, and 
as the Egyptian military forces pursued Israel, God destroyed them in the Red Sea. Their dead bodies were washing up onto the shore of the Red Sea. It was a very intense scene, very vivid. And Exodus 14.31 says, Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. You see, fear and worship are connected. And Israel worshiped God right there at the Red Sea. And they sang a song and the song is listed in Exodus 15. And so just listen to this song and listen to how great God is in it. I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him, my Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his host he cast into the sea, And his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury. It consumes them like stubble. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The floods stood up in a heap. The deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue. I will overtake. I will divide the spoil. My desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword. My hand shall destroy them. You blew your wind. The sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? You stretch out your right hand. The earth swallowed them. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. The peoples have heard. They tremble. Pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed. Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them because of the greatness of your arm. They are still as a stone. Till your people, O Lord, pass by. Till the people pass by whom you have purchased. You will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain. The place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established, the Lord will reign forever and ever. The Lord will reign forever and ever. What a song. Can you hear the magnificence of God in words like triumphed gloriously? Strength, song, salvation, man of war, glorious in power, greatness, majesty, fury, majestic in holiness, steadfast love. That, my friends, is true greatness. The song ends with a great crescendo. The Lord will reign forever and ever. Is there anything more magnificent and worthy of your worship than Almighty God? King David prayed in 1 Chronicles 29, 11, Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. Who owns the universe? Who is head over all creation? It is God Almighty. 
Psalm 145.3 says, Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. That means that the greatness of God is beyond our comprehension. We cannot fathom God. God is greater than you and I could ever imagine. Psalm 47 verse 2 says, For the Lord, the Most High, is to be feared, a great king over all the earth. Psalm 95 verses 3 through 5 add, For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. In his hands are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are also his. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. Now how should we respond to greatness like this? Ah, Psalm 95 verse 6 tells us, Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our maker. We bow down. We worship God because his greatness is unparalleled. The glorious heavenly creatures in Revelation 4, 8 never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And the 24 elders who fall down before the throne in worship, say Revelations 4.11, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. God is supremely holy. God is eternally holy. God is worthy of all glory. He is worthy of all honor. He is worthy of all power because he is the engineer of the universe and he wills things to exist. You exist and I exist right now because God is willing you to exist. How could anyone possibly capture the fullness of the magnificence of God? We are only scratching the surface. God is spirit. God is invisible. God is eternal. God has no beginning or end. God existed before anything that you or I have ever enjoyed. God is omnipotent. God's unequaled power is eternal. God upholds the entire universe by his word. God is divine. God's nature is the fullness of godness. God is omnipresent. God is everywhere all at once. The eyes of God are in every place. God is omniscient. God is perfect in knowledge. God's understanding is beyond measure. God is personal. God is Father, Son, and Spirit relating to one another in perfect love and adoration in eternity. God is immutable, never changing. God is not fickle, unfaithful, or capricious. God does not lie. God does not change his mind. God always does what he says. God is sovereign. God has complete and utter ownership and authority and reign over all things. God is holy, God is holy, God is holy. All of that I can give you chapter and verse. How can we begin to describe an indescribable God? God's greatness is seen in salvation. It is God who predestines us, God who elects us, God who effectually calls us, God who regenerates us, God who gives repentance and faith to us, God who justifies us, God who adopts us, God who sanctifies us, God who preserves us, and God who glorifies us. The sovereign mercy and grace of God are far and wide and deep. It was Paul that said that he was not ashamed of the gospel because Romans 1.16 says the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. 1 Corinthians 1.17 says the cross 
has power. In Ephesians 1.19, Paul described the greatness of God as immeasurable. How can you measure it? It was by the great might of God that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. Who can describe the greatness of God? Hebrews 12, 28 and 29, really, really worth you studying on your own. So write that reference down. Hebrews 12, 28 and 29, two verses. Please study that, meditate that on, uh, on that this week. Listen, therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken And thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Now these verses are important, and I believe they can help you understand the point I am trying to make. Take note of six quick things. Number one, God cannot be shaken. The unshakable kingdom belongs to an unshakable king. Number two, God's kingdom cannot be shaken. God's kingdom is unchangeable and unshakable. Nothing can rattle it. It endures forever. Number three, God gives that kingdom. Now, you have to know about Hebrews that it was written to a church. It was written to a local church congregation, maybe like Jerusalem Church. And the writer is reminding them that they have received God's unshakable kingdom as a gift of grace. Number four, Christians should be grateful to God. If God gave us an unshakable kingdom over which he, the great and unshakable king, reigns, then we should be very thankful that he gave the kingdom to us. Number five, Christians should offer God acceptable worship, or you could say acceptable service, with reverence and awe. Worship is the thankful response to the magnificence of God and his kingdom. Acceptable worship is worship that is acceptable to God, worship that pleases God. So true worship has to be done so that it pleases God. It's not up to us. It's up to God. What he demands is what we need to give. Verse 28 describes the kind of worship God wants. Number one, reverence. We offer God worship that is filled with a profound respect and fear of God. And number two, awe. We offer worship that is filled with awe, which is an overwhelming sense of fear and wonder at God. You can even describe it as dread. Why offer to God worship filled with reverence and awe? Verse 29 explains, number six, God is a consuming fire. That's almost a direct quote from Deuteronomy 4.24. God is a fire that completely destroys. I think people have pathetic worship because the God that they know is not the real, terrifying, fierce God of the Bible. God is a fire that completely destroys. The point is God is holy. God is fierce. God is intense. God is powerful. God is just. Therefore, worship Him with reverence and awe. We're not dealing with a small entity that we can control. We're dealing with the almighty God. See, the object of our worship determines how we worship. If the object of your worship is small and insignificant, your worship will also be small and insignificant. God is not small. God is not insignificant. Anyone who does not approach God through his son, Jesus Christ, will be consumed by God. 
So, as we approach a holy God boldly through Christ, a God that is our loving Father, we must approach with humility, we must approach with reverence, and we must approach with awe. The Bible says God is love. That's what people are championing today. Well, the Bible also says that God is a consuming fire. He'll kill you if you're not on his page. Is there a way to approach God and not be destroyed, someone would say? I quake and tremble at this huge mass of God. How can I approach him and not be destroyed? How can I approach him and receive love instead of wrath, instead of justice, instead of a vengeful fury? There is a way. You approach through the person and work of Jesus Christ. And then you approach boldly because God is your loving Father and you will not be destroyed because you are in Christ. You are safe in Christ. He is your shield. He is your refuge. He is your protection. And through Christ, you receive the unfathomable warmth and love and generosity and grace of God in full. It's yours as a child of God, a king, a child of the king. Friends, we were made to see and savor God's incomprehensible greatness. To worship anything else is to settle. It's to be pathetic and to settle for something like badly settle. It's not even close. You don't want to settle. You don't want to settle. Why do people worship other things when God is so great? Why is it that a teenager can scream for the Beatles or Justin Bieber or Justin Timberlake or Drake or Adele? Why can they scream for them and be so overwhelmingly bored with God? And here's why. It's because they have yet to see the extent of the greatness of God because if they could see God as he truly is, they would worship him alone. They can't see God. They're blinded in their sin. They think that what they're doing will give them the greatest happiness and what they're doing is killing them because they can't see God. It's got to be a movement of the Holy Spirit to show the people of Jerusalem Church and our culture who God really is through his word and through his creation. God would be the heartbeat of our worship if we knew how great he was. Why does the workaholic sacrifice so much for their job, their company? And they sacrifice so little for the church. Why? Why would you do that? They have yet to see the extent of the greatness of God. Why do people consistently, you see it every day, even with people who come to church, they prioritize work, they prioritize school, they prioritize sports, they prioritize recreation, they prioritize entertainment, they prioritize social activities, and they do it above God. Why? Why would they do that? Because they have yet to see the extent of the greatness of God. God is the heartbeat of true worship, but he won't be the heartbeat of your worship. He won't be the heartbeat of my worship until we see the greatness of God displayed in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Until we see and understand that God is better than everything else. He's not going to be the heartbeat of our worship. Our hearts are going to beat for other things. 
And then we're going to end up at the end of the day completely disappointed. And we shouldn't ask the question why. Too many churches have trivial and small worship because many people in those churches are more impressed with an entertaining show than they are with Almighty God. Too many churches have stale and lazy and heartless worship because many people in those churches find man-centered religion, find tradition more impressive than God. Too many churches fight and split and bicker and argue over secondary things like the color of the carpet, the style of music, the placement of the pulpit, pews versus chairs, old hymns versus new hymns, change this, leave that, change that, leave this. And they fight and split because they take their eyes off the primary thing, the greatness of God. Just a thought here. There are people who are enamored and so taken by a church building. And this just, oh, it just doesn't make sense because the church isn't a building. The church is people. So instead of being enamored with the glory and greatness of God and know how to love and serve our brothers and sisters, we start clenching our fists around a building, a location. Hmm. You know you could worship God in a gas station with other brothers and sisters in Christ. You don't even need a building. Go outside. You, you can just worship God there. Now, in PA, that's interesting in, you know, March or February. It's not about a building. Church is about people gathering together anywhere to worship and serve God together because God is infinitely great. That's what's at the heart of it. Buildings are helpful. Glad we have one. Glad it's paid for. Hallelujah. Thank you, God. And the purpose of our building is to help us point and direct people to the greatness of God, not to distract people from seeing the greatness of God. And when we prioritize that and we clutch on, this is mine, all right, we show that this is more important than God. Now, we're making some building changes. This is strategic. I want you to think through this because here is what at, at the heart of it. I hope that the purpose of these building changes that we are making at Jerusalem Church is to point more people more effectively to the glory of God. And if it doesn't, we should not do it. The building is just a tool to help us point somewhere beyond it, and we're trying to point to God. So listen, listen, please care. This is, you got to listen to this carefully. A great way to kill true worship in a church is to prioritize secondary things like a building or like tradition or like preferences above the greatness of God. Now, I'm not saying a building's not important. I'm not saying that preferences aren't, don't have their place or that we shouldn't talk about some of these tradition and stuff. It's when they become the thing that is like really captivating and motivating for us instead of the glory of God. When enough people in a church are more concerned and animated about their preferences and secondary things than they are about the greatness of God, worship dies, and just give it a little bit of time, the church will die too. A great way to kill true worship in your heart now, in your life, is to esteem and revere and enjoy the greatness of earthly pleasures more than you enjoy the greatness of God, and that's called idolatry. That's not loving God. God deserves our worship because God is the heartbeat of true worship. 
my friends, this is the beginning of a series that I hope deeply blesses your heart and just challenges you and, and helps you take a step forward in your Christian growth. I hope God uses it greatly in your life. This series is leading us somewhere. It is leading you to see and savor the greatness of God. We have to start with the greatness of God because that is what worship is directed to. And if you don't get that, you're going to lose worship. I beg of you to look to Christ. Look to Christ. See in Him His greatness, His unrivaled greatness. See the greatness of His sinful life. See the greatness of His substitutionary death on the cross. See the greatness of His tomb. See the greatness of His resurrection. See the greatness of the gospel and see in the gospel the greatness of Almighty God. Be amazed that the gospel is true. He's alive. And be amazed that God is so great that he could plunge you from your sin and save even you. Be amazed. Be pleased with that. Be be excited about that. Be so overwhelmed by the greatness of God that you give him all your worship and you serve him alone. God is the heartbeat of true worship and our hearts must beat for him alone. Father, we thank you for this word that is clear, so clear. We know who we should worship, but our hearts get all tangled up in the pleasures of this world that are just like lapping up dirty, muddy, murky water in the desert when we have this fountain of living water available to us in Christ just to drink deeply of you, God. And and so many of us, we just feel so thirsty and we keep lapping up the pleasures of the world, but it's not quenching our thirst and we wonder what's what's wrong, why life isn't working. Well, it's because you provide life through your ever-flowing fountain of greatness that comes to us through Jesus Christ. And so I pray that you would work your spirit in the people here and that they would see and be blown away by your greatness, that they would see like they'd never seen before, and that then, in a response to your greatness, they would worship you and serve you alone. Do it, God, for your glory. In the name of your Son, who is eternally great, we pray. Amen.